0: I'm sure many of you, um, as I was, uh, was horrified to hear the news that came out of Newport News just the other day, that a young six-year-old boy would pull a gun on his teacher, and shoot her. And I don't pretend to have any clue what was going on behind the scenes, what was going on in the heart. And mind of that young little boy. But there are two things that contribute to something like that that we can say with certainty, not because we know the specifics of a situation like that, but because we know what God's word says about our world. The first is that we have a great enemy, Satan and his demons. We talked about them last week, and he hates the image of God. He hates humans. He hates you. He hates six-year-old boys and news and the young ladies who teach them. He and his minions love to steal, kill, and destroy. We know that. We can say that with certainty. We also know, because we can look at our world around us and because we can read what the Word of God says, we know that we live in a world system, not referring to the people, but the system in which we live, the culture in which we live, the air that we breathe is a culture of death. We live in a culture, we live in a world that promotes death, that devalues life. And you can't be in that fish tank for too long without it starting to affect you. We live in a culture that is absolutely devaluing human life. There are countless ways we could point to this devaluing of human life in our culture, but the clearest is the way that we treat the unborn, the smallest and most vulnerable among us. If you've been at PBC for at least a year, you know that it's been our tradition to take two Sundays in January to examine the twin evils of abortion and racism from a Christian worldview. Uh, We've talked about these issues in the month of January because there's a lot of cultural discussion on those issues this time of year. Um, Racism, because Martin Luther King Jr. is right in the middle of the month, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and then abortion because the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, that Supreme Court case that infamously legalized abortion on demand in our nation, was decided in January. As perhaps you've followed the news over the past year and you've noticed the overturning of Roe v. Wade in our nation, perhaps you've wondered if that would also be followed by a subsequent overturning of those topics from our church calendar. I want to suggest to you as important as overturning Roe v. Wade was, the fight to protecting preborn babies in our nation is far from over. Let me suggest, before we look at our text, two reasons why. Reason number one, overturning Roe did not make abortion illegal in our country. You might have heard that on a news station somewhere. You might have read that in an article, but it's simply not true. Since Roe fell last June, voters in Kansas, Montana, and Kentucky, hardly predictable blue states, all failed to pass laws that would have protected the unborn. Other states, ten, in fact passed laws since Roe fell that expanded access to abortion in our nation. So if anything, in a lot of places, there's actually more access to abortion this side of Roe than there was before. Forty-four states continue to provide access to abortion for some or any reason, including the Commonwealth of Virginia, where since Roe was overturned in June of last year, over 800 babies lost their lives to abortion on the peninsula alone just since last June. That's reason number one. Overturning Roe did not make abortion illegal. Here's the second reason why I think we need to continue to think and talk about this issue from the Scriptures. That is, even if Roe did make abortion illegal, it cannot make abortion unthinkable. What we ought to aim for if we want a culture that values and treasures human life, is not merely for abortion to become illegal, but for it to become unthinkable. In God's providence, we live in a day and age in which the most insidious forms of racism are unthinkable for most people. You can't even imagine most of us living in a world where people were enslaved and treated as property because of the color of their skin. The passage of the 13th Amendment made that form of racism illegal, but changing that law didn't make racism unthinkable, did it? Jim Crow laws and countless others made racism perpetuate for much longer after the end of slavery in the United States of America. But today, racism is unthinkable in the minds of many. It's a cardinal sin to be labeled a racist. I believe that Christians ought to work for and pray for a culture where abortion is viewed the same way, where it's not merely illegal, but unthinkable. And so, with God's help, we'll continue to talk about this issue as the Lord allows. This year, due to a few other things on our calendar before an upcoming sabbatical, Lord willing, we won't address the topics of abortion and racism separately. We're going to focus on the topic of abortion today. I'll make appropriate application to the issue of racism today as it's appropriate to do so. And as it comes up in the text later on throughout the year, we'll do that as well. But today, we're going to focus on this issue, which is, we could say, the litmus test of what we believe about the sacredness of human life. I'm gonna invite you, if you're not already there, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. This passage is not a classic passage on the sanctity of human life. If you were to go to Google and, and Google Bible verses about the sanctity of human life, Bible verses about abortion, you will not find Matthew 25 in that text or in that list of verses. It's not one of those types of passages, but it is a passage that teaches us three incredibly important truths that have incredibly important bearing on this issue. One of these we ought to remember as Christians is When we study God's Word, what we ought not to do is is view it kind of like an encyclopedia where you go and find the topic, and here's everything the Bible says about this topic. We want to look at all of life through all of the lens of all of Scripture. So that's what we're going to do with God's help this morning from Matthew chapter 25. I want to show you three truths about how God's people should live until Jesus returns. And I want to show you how we can apply that to this particular issue. Three truths. Truth number one: here's a promise from our text, Jesus will return. Jesus will return a really simple, really clear, really obvious lesson from this passage. Now, just remember the context when Jesus delivered these words. This is the final days before His crucifixion. You remember the disciples were expecting Jesus to enter into the city of Jerusalem, and they're expecting Him to overthrow Rome. One of the reasons why they cast down palm branches and their jackets at his feet was because that was something that had been done hundreds of years earlier for another Jewish leader that entered into the city and overthrew their oppressors. They think Jesus is going to do that. Jesus wants them to understand, listen to me, I'm not here to establish an earthly kingdom the way you think. I'm actually going to be leaving you guys something they really didn't understand. And so Jesus, as He often did, told them a story. Look at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. Now, of course, the master in this story represents Jesus He's going to leave His disciples very soon. Uh, At the time, the disciples didn't understand this. They didn't know that Jesus was leaving. They didn't know why He was leaving. Perhaps after His death, they thought, well, maybe that the journey that Jesus is going to go on is, is His death. If you remember in the book of Acts, they say to Jesus after His resurrection, now, now, is it now the time you're going to set up your kingdom, Jesus? Jesus says, that's not your business to know they still really didn't understand that Jesus was going to leave. We live in that period of time. We live in this parable from verses 16 to 18 where the master, Jesus, is not physically among us. He's not here. He is here by His Spirit, but we don't see Him. We can't touch His scars. We can't hear His voice with our ears We live in this period when Jesus is physically absent. Verse 19 tells us that Jesus' absence is going to be a long one. Look at verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. For nearly 2,000 years, we have been living, waiting for the return of Jesus. But I want you to notice in verse 19 what Jesus is going to do when He returns. He's coming back. The Master returns to settle accounts. Settle accounts. Here's something we need to understand, Christian. Your life is not a big, long vacation until Jesus comes back. Life is not... Meant to be, lived, enjoying every single thing you could possibly enjoy, all the pleasure, all the entertainment, all the fun, all the money, whatever, just pile it up, pile it up, and then when Jesus gets back, I get heaven. That's not what the Christian life is supposed to be. We're actually here with a job to do, and when Jesus returns, He's going to give an account or we're going to give an account for what we've done with what he's given us. This is the message that's clearly taught at the end of scripture in Revelation chapter 22 verse 12. Jesus says, "Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done." There's the first truth. Jesus will return. But what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Second truth from our text, there's a lesson that we must use our resources. Use your resources. Look what the master does with his servants before he leaves. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now that word talent is kind of a, a confusing word. You think talent, you think talent show, right? You know, this is the kind of like wiggle my ears or flip my eyelids in reverse or I can whistle or juggle. It's not that kind of talent. It's not like Jesus is, is, is parsing out different skills, a talent in that day was a currency. It was worth about 20 years' wages. This is a lot of money. So, if we could put it in our currency for a moment, the average annual pay for manual labor in the United States is about $31,000 a year. This is 20 years' wages. So, one talent would be about $600,000. Jesus, or this master in the story, calls up his three servants, one of them gets three million dollars, one of them gets 1.2 million, the other gets 600,000. Now there's a lesson for us here, Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given considerable resources from Jesus. I mean notice what they're given. I mean, three million bucks. One and a half million, six hundred thousand. That's a lot. You say, well, Jesus never gave me that much money. Well, what has He given you? Do you have a house? Do you have a a vehicle where you can go from one place to another and, and speeds that other people could have only dreamed of? Do you have a savings account? Do you have a Bible on your shelf in a language that you can read? Do you have a device that actually can get you dozens of Bible translations in an instant? Do you have Christian books that you can read or or listen to or study to understand God's Word better? Do you have a church building that you can meet in and gather with God's people and be relatively comfortable? You can sing out loud and not quietly. You don't have to be afraid of who watched you park your car in the parking lot. Think of all that you have been given, Christian. Jesus has given us resources. What are they for? Maybe before we get to that, some of you might be wondering, well, wait a minute. Why does the Master give more to some than to others? That is not our business, Christian. You look around you. Just look on your row. Unless you're sitting by yourself, everybody but Chris here, if you're not sitting by yourself, there's someone on your row that has something that you don't have. Oh, Nick, you too over there. The rest of you, somebody on your row. Somebody has something you don't, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, financially. Why did God give him that and not me? Why does she have that and not me? It's none of your business, Christian. It's not. The Bible does not answer that for us. God sovereignly distributes to each one as He wills. It is not our job to say, I want what she has or I want what He has. It is our job to say, what has God given me and what should I do with it? The important question is, what did these servants do with what they were given? Look at verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done. These first two servants used what they were given to serve the master. It's interesting, that phrase that perhaps you've heard a lot, well done, my good and faithful servant, it comes right here from this parable. Now, I've heard preachers say before that that phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, that's only said to the cream of the crop the really good Christians. Man, I mean, you want to get into heaven by the skin of your teeth, or do you want to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant? That's not the way that the story goes. Jesus says to the man who earns five talents, well done, good and faithful servant. And to the man who only earns two, He does not say Okay job, decent and mediocre servant. Enter into the disappointment of your master. He doesn't say that. Why? What does he say? Well done. It's the same joy that they're entering into. It's the same affirmation. It's the same celebration. One earns five, one earns two, but they both earn the love and affection and joy of their master. So too with you, dear Christians. You might look at your life, and look at what you have, and look at your fruit, and you might say, man, I just can't do what she does. I can't do that. Jesus is all I got. And over here, you know, you got Miss Perfect who's got so much more. think, well, what is He going to say to me? You know what He's going to say to you, Christian? well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What Jesus wants from you, Christian, is not to reach the same level of output as some other Christian. He wants you to give the same level of input. It could be That your dear, Miss Perfect Christian friend next to you or near you, who seems to have so much output, is actually underperforming because they're not putting all that they have into it. Jesus is not here measuring, how much do you earn for me? Jesus wants to know, what are you doing with what I've given you? What are you doing with what I've given you? Are you using your resources for the kingdom? If you're a Christian, you have been given resources by Jesus to use for Jesus. What are you doing with Him? What are you doing with Him? The lesson is that we should work according to the resources that we've been given. There's a third th- truth in our text that we must consider, and that's a warning in action, doing nothing is reprehensible. Look at how the master in Jesus' story responds to this, the third servant. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground here. You have what's yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest." Notice the words the master in this story uses to describe his servant. Wicked, slothful, worthless. Is the master overreacting? what did the what did this poor third guy do wrong? I mean, he didn't lose the money. He gave it back. Here you go, Jesus, here you go, Master. Here's your money back. He didn't steal it. I mean, 600,000 bucks, a lot of money, get a road off into the sunset. He didn't do that. He didn't work for the master's enemies. All he did was bury that money in the backyard. Is that really such a big deal? Apparently, the master in Jesus' story thought so. Look at what he does, verse 28. First, he takes the servant's talent away. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone, who has more, who, for everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But that's just the beginning. Look at verse 30. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those phrases, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, are used eight different times in the New Testament, and every time they're a clear reference to hell. This third servant doesn't get a slap on the wrist He gets hell for eternity. Why? Is the master overreacting? If you claim to be a servant of our master, King Jesus, and your faith in Jesus doesn't lead you to action for Jesus, you don't have faith in the right Jesus. I'm going to say that again. If your faith in Jesus doesn't lead you to action for Jesus, you don't have faith in the right Jesus. And that's the problem with this servant. The first and foremost problem, the biggest problem in this guy's life is not what he did or didn't do. It's what he believed about the master. Look at the passage. Look at it, verse 25. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. Does this sound like Jesus? Christian followers of Jesus in this room, do you know Jesus to be hard and severe? Is Jesus a lazy boss who delegates all the work to his underlings and keeps all the credit to himself? Is that the Jesus of the scriptures? Or is Jesus gentle and lowly in heart? Or do we work for Jesus with resources from Jesus? Who's the Jesus that you worship? Is he a stern, angry, harsh master? Or is he loving and gentle and good? The problem with this man is not first and foremost that he didn't work for the master, but he didn't even know the master. See, if you truly know Jesus, if your life has been transformed by Jesus, it will show. It will. You're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus. Here's what Jesus is like He is holy. He is holy. But He's also love. And this Jesus, whose standard is perfect holiness, willingly came to this earth, fulfilled that standard in our place, died on the cross as our substitute for failing to keep that standard, and rose from the dead so that if we believe in Him, we can have eternal life. Do you know that Jesus? If you know that Jesus, you cannot help but be mobilized to work for that Jesus. If that truth has changed your heart, if it's really sunk in, not merely between the ears, but deep into the recesses of who you are, it will show. That's the point of this parable. Because Christians truly know the Master, we cannot be inactive. I'm not saying we're all going to do the same things that everybody else does. Not saying we're going to do as much as everybody else does. But in action, doing nothing, burying what you've been given in the ground somewhere and giving it back to Jesus when He comes back is not an option for the born-again child of God. Now, that's what our passage teaches us. How do we apply all of that to the issue of abortion. Let me walk through these three truths again in reverse order. Inaction is reprehensible. I'm going to suggest to you, Christian, you don't all have to do the same thing to fight for the unborn. You don't all have to do it in the same way. You don't all have to do it with the same intensity. But an inaction is not an option. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's what James is saying. One of the the key evidences that your faith is genuine is how you respond to the most vulnerable people in the world. In James' day, that was orphans and widows. In our day, it's the unborn. Did you know that over 44 million babies lost their life to abortion last year in our world? Abortion is the leading cause of death worldwide. Maybe you think, well, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Isn't the issue of abortion more complicated? I'm going to suggest to you, friend, the abortion debate is not a complicated debate. There is one and only one question that matters in this debate. It's the question that was on the front page of the New York Times just the other day. When does life begin? That's the question. That's the question in the abortion debate. If the unborn is not a living human person, then do whatever you want. No no argument against abortion makes any sense. But if the unborn is a living human person, then no argument for abortion makes sense. I think sometimes it's helpful... To see the lunacy of our arguments for abortion, if we kind of take them off and apply them to a different issue. So, I want you to think, let's mental exercise for a second, think about the arguments that we hear or perhaps even use in favor of abortion, and let's apply them to another social issue like, let's say, slavery, race-based chattel slavery. Okay, so one of the arguments about abortion is a woman's right to privacy. Does a woman have a right to privacy? Sure. Should people have the right to privacy? Yes. But in everything? Do you have the right to privately keep slaves in the comfort of your own home as long as it never bothers anyone outside of it? Of course not. Absolutely not. The right to privacy has limits. We know that to be true. Some others say, well, what about a woman's right to choose? Should we have the right to choose? Yes. You should have the right to choose, dear brother, sister, friend, a number of things. I hope you use that right. I hope when it's time for lunch, you choose and you eat what you want except for Chick-fil-A, you can't do that today, you have to wait till tomorrow. You have the right to choose and you ought to use that right. But we don't have the right to choose whatever we want. If the right to choose was an unlimited right, then anyone that wanted to choose to own slaves should be able to have the right to choose. But we all understand that the right to choice is not unlimited. There's limits on it. There are some things that I can choose that I should not be able to choose. And if I choose to do those things, I should go to jail. We understand that. The right to choose is not unlimited. What about a woman's safety? One of the arguments we often hear is that legal abortion keeps people safe. It protects women from attempting on their own what, would harm, what will harm themselves. I can imagine that someone might have made a similar argument in the United States of America as the debate over slavery, slavery was raging in our nation. Can you imagine a plantation owner say, well, legalized slavery keeps these poor folks safe. They couldn't make it in that harsh world on their own. We keep them safe. We're good to them. Abortion is safe for who? Is it safe for the unborn child? Another argument we often hear is, what about families who can't afford a baby? I mean, if a mom and dad can't afford a little baby, should we make her, should we force her? to endure the nine months of pregnancy? What about a slave owner that couldn't afford to keep his plantation running apart from the slave labor? Would we say to him, well, you can't afford to do that without them, so you need that? Of course not. Should we say, well, if you can't afford the unborn child growing in you that now we have the right to eliminate it? What about moms who don't want a baby? What about the counties, the cities, the states that didn't want free blacks in our country? Would it be right to say, well, since they don't want them to be free, we should just keep slavery legal? Of course not. We should fight to teach people that what they wanted was wrong. And so, too, with a a mom in a crisis pregnancy, with all the compassion we we can muster, we should fight the teacher that not wanting that child is wrong. Besides, there is no such thing as an unwanted child. I promise you, there are men and women, maybe even within this own church, that would gladly take that little boy or girl. Why can't I just be personally against this and let others do what they want? Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says, don't like abortion? Then don't have one. What about a bumper sticker that said, don't like slavery? Don't own one. See, the logic doesn't make sense. If the unborn is a living human person made in the image of God, then there is no reason to take their life. Last January, I argued from Proverbs 31, 8, and 9 that abortion is the greatest injustice of our time because no right is more foundational than the right to life and nobody is more vulnerable than the unborn. I want to suggest to you, Christian, the fight for the unborn is not one option along the buffet of social justice issues that we could fight for. It is the foundational, fundamental social justice fight in our world today. It is the darkest and most deadly. Injustice in our world today, and perhaps in all of human history. I'm not saying, Christian, I'm not saying that you should be a single-issue voter sort of Christian. I am saying that you cannot ignore or minimize this foundational issue, the sanctity of unborn life, and still pretend you're fighting against injustice. It's not how it works. So what am I supposed to do? second truth from our text, use your resources. Use your resources. Consider with me three resources that we all possess, your wealth, your abilities, your time. What about your wealth? I'm not saying that all of you in this room are wealthy, but you have stuff. You have stuff. Don't just use your wealth to store up treasures here. Store up treasures in heaven. Question to the Christians in this room, are you using your finances to support the sanctity of human life? Now, pause for a second. I believe, Christian, the first and most important place where you should give is to the local church. And if you, Christian, are faithfully giving to the local church, let me just encourage you for a second, you are giving to support the sanctity of human life. You are. You didn't even know you were, but you are. Why? Well, because we talk about it here. Your giving helps us do that. We, we support CareNet as a church. Your giving helps us do that. Your giving helps us spread the only message that can change the hearts of our nation on this issue. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your giving helps us do that. So before you beat yourself, oh, I'm not giving enough of this or that, If you're faithfully giving here, you are. You are. Maybe God would call call some of you to give more. If you go over to our missions wall before you leave here today, you'll see a display over there for CareNet. You'll see a bunch of baby bottles there on the bottom of the table over there. Uh, You can grab one of those, fill it up with coins, fill it up with dollar bills or a check, bring it back to us. Uh, In the next few weeks, we'll have some announcements on that for you. And we'll give that to support the ministry of Karen and the work that they're doing. It's Incredible work being done through this ministry. If God calls you, enables you, equips you to use more of your wealth in this area, I would commend you to do that. What about your abilities? What abilities has God given you? How could you leverage your abilities to fight for the sanctity of human life in our world? Maybe you could foster or adopt a little boy or girl. Listen, Christians, if we're going to fight for the sanctity of human life, we have to fight for the beauty of adoption and foster care. We've got to. can't do one without the other. Maybe some of you never even considered it. Listen, if all that... God does out of this sermon is one couple in this room has a conversation about that that they've never had before, that would be a huge win in my book. Even if you end up deciding, you know what, it's not the right time for us, or maybe, you know, it's way past the right time for us, but if you talk about it, that's a win. Have you considered it? What if God would call me to do that? So my heroes in this room are those of you that have taken little ones into your home and loved them as your own. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. There's much more you can do than just that. Can you cook meals or clean to support an adopting family as they adjust to life with a new little one? Can you mentor a young single mom who chooses life teach her how to change diapers, feed her baby, or read the child of the Bible? Are you a handyman? You could help a refugee mom considering an abortion because she doesn't know how she's going to make these repairs and welcome a baby into the world. Are you compassionate? You can meet with a young lady who's had an abortion and tenderly share with her the hope of forgiveness that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you engaged in politics? You can vote and advocate for leaders and policies that protect the unborn. Can you knit or sew? You can sew blankets for moms who choose life. There's countless things that you can do with the abilities that God has given you. For most of us, the biggest limit is our time. Our time. That's really the one resource that we just don't have as much of as we want. Listen to me, Christian. Jesus knows how much time you have. He's not asking you to give Him five hours a week when you've only got five minutes. If He gives you five talents, He knows that He's given you what you can handle. If He gives you two, He knows He's given you what you're able to handle. The question is not, how much time do I have, but what am I doing with the time that was given me? What are you doing with the time that you have? Even if, Christian, you have little bandwidth for anything else, some of you are stay-at-home moms and you got kids up to your eyeballs, you got crazy stuff going on in your world, can you pray, can you pray? Your prayers for God to root out this injustice in our world are not meaningless. Christian, if that is all you do with the resources God has given you, Jesus will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Even if that's all you've got, that is good, noble, powerful, meaningful work and the fight against this evil. Christian, our job is not to fix this issue. Our job is to faithfully use our resources for the work of the kingdom. When Jesus returns, He will fix this issue. Let's look at that final truth. There is coming a time when abortion will be no more. I don't know if it will happen in this nation before Jesus returns, but I know this. It will happen. It will happen. The day is coming when this and every other evil committed under the sun will be once and for all undone. Christian, if you faithfully use what God has given you to work for that day, Jesus sees and He is pleased, and you will be rewarded. Maybe in this room you hear all of this and your first thought is, well, I I haven't really done anything. I've been guilty of inaction. I've been like that third servant. I haven't done anything. Maybe I've even worked against the sanctity of human life. Maybe there's ladies in this room that have had an abortion or considered it or counseled one for someone else. Maybe that's you in this room and you say, well, is there any hope for me? If you know this Jesus, there is. If you know Him, there is. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song, one of the most beloved songs of all time, a song called amazing grace written by a man named John Newton many of you know the story of John Newton or at least you've heard parts of the story you know that John Newton was an african slave trader whose eyes were opened to grace repented of his racism and fought to end the slave trade that is all true John Newton was a slave trader he did realize that what he was doing was wrong. He did repent of that sin, and he did use all of his resources to fight to put it to death. But here's the part of the story that a lot of Christians don't know. John Newton didn't even start in the slave trade until after he became a Christian. See, the myth is that John Newton was this horrible slave trader, becomes a Christian, boom, I'm all done with this old life, and I'm going to fight against the slave trade. That's not really how it happened. The truth is, he became a Christian. He continued kind of on the path he was on. He became a slave trader, and for 10 years, he worked in the slave trade until he realized what he was doing. He realized how wrong it was. And God, in his mercy, did not let John Newton go. And God brought John Newton to repentance. And John Newton had a turning point in his life as a Christian where he turned from his past ways and used what he had to fight for the kingdom of Christ. Maybe that's you, Christian. If it is, there is amazing grace even for you today. Would you pray with me?